third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and was no longer, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and the angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the eagle, the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the, des- to the testimony of Jesus. Okay, immediately, as we read Revelation, as we see this chapter, we're immediately struck with intense imagery. The reason is Revelation identifies itself in the very first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation, Greek word, apocalypse. The idea behind apocalyptic writing would be, would be showing, unveiling, revealing, or disclosing the realities of the, the spiritual world, the unseen realities that are at work and play behind the scenes of history. And so Revelation is apocalyptic in that sense. Also prophetic, Revelation refers to itself as the prophecy of Christ. Meaning, through Revelation, we do see the great hope that we have in Christ. The future hope that we have, but that's always linked with the present. The future hope is linked with present faithfulness now. And so it's important for us to understand the nature of this type of writing in Revelation is going to be highly symbolic. And why? The reason it's symbolic is, quite frankly, words just simply will not do justice to the truth that's in here. And so there's great images, profound images, and they're meant to do something to us. As we read this, there's a sense of awe that as we recognize the symbolism that's taken place here, the images. In other words, Revelation is written in a sense to engage our our minds, but also to captivate our hearts. And at times, it's the images that we see that captivate our hearts. And Revelation tells us that it is symbolic, and we see this, that various characters or events or even numbers represent other things. For instance, throughout the book, we see Jesus. Jesus is real, obviously, but symbolized at times as a conquering lion, 
at other times as a sacrificial lamb. Satan is real, but characterized as a serpent and as a dragon. And as well, even numbers, for our purposes this morning, the number seven in the book of Revelation, that's a theme throughout the book. Seven represents completeness. So with this book, intense images in order to captivate our hearts. And so Revelation, what it's doing to us is it's saying and there are things beyond which your eyes can see that you have to be aware of. In a sense, if you will, Revelation acts as a flight attendant. Recently, I was on a flight. I was in the very back of the plane, you know, in the very uncomfortable chairs that can't recline. So I'm wide awake, and I'm watching what's going on. And the flight attendant at the front of the plane is walking back to the, to the back of the plane with a young girl. She sees the flight attendant at the rear of the plane, and she mentions to her, that this, this little girl is five years old and she's flying all by herself. So the flight attendant asked the other one if she can explain the flight to her. The little girl sits down right across from me and the flight attendant begins and she says, are you excited about flying today? Little girl, she's smiling, she's nodding, she's excited. Then the, told, the scene completely changes, tone of voice changes, the flight attendant says, well, in case of an emergency, there's two exits loaded directly behind me, and you just have to follow everybody else if there's an emergency to get out as quickly as you possibly can. At this point, me and the guy next to me were horrified at what's taking place here. This girl's just excited about flying, and she's five. It's completely inappropriate, as this, this flight attendant is saying, you're in a life-and-death situation. It's inappropriate for a five-year-old, but it's appropriate for us. Revelation, that's what it's doing. It's saying, don't get too comfortable in life. Recognize there are things you must know. There is a warning here that we have to be able to embrace. And we see it throughout this chapter that, uh, that the verse, uh, verses 1 through 6 explain to us there's a great sign that appears in heaven. And the sign is that there is a woman, a child, and a dragon Okay, so obvious question for us. Who's the woman? Who's the child? Who's the dragon? The woman is described as pregnant. And this includes, this would include Mary, but it goes far beyond Mary, mother of Jesus. This is symbolic of the nation of Israel, of God's people giving birth to the Messiah, to the Christ. And we celebrated this a week ago. The prophecy, even out of Micah chapter 5, O you, Bethlehem, from you shall come a ruler who should shepherd my people Israel. So the pregnant woman is the nation of Israel. It's God's people who are giving birth to the Messiah. Okay, the child, obviously. The child is Christ. He's described as ruling with a rod of iron. It also says that he was caught up to God and to his throne. And we understand that as encapsulating his incarnation, crucifixion, his exaltation. His incarnation, we celebrated that, that he became, that he took on flesh. Okay, he was born, but then he died for our sins by way of the crucifixion on the cross. But then rose from the grave, the exaltation. And so he's caught up to God. He's caught up to the throne of God. This is just capturing the realities of the first coming of Christ. So we have the woman, we have the child, but then we have the dragon. And the dragon represents Satan. And symbolically described with seven, ten, seven heads and ten horns. 
this would represent the great power, especially when, we, when people who would read this, especially first century, would think of horns, they'd think of powerful ram's horns, things of that nature. This represents great power over the nations. Also, this dragon is depicted as his tail sweeping a third of the stars out of heaven. And this, the understanding, is the ancient fall of Satan. As he fell, he and a third of the angels, who also, out of pride, sinned against God, fallen from heaven. And this serpent is described as seeking to devour the Christ, seeking to devour the child. And we see that throughout the pages of Scripture. We see it back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, 15, the promise that this serpent, the devil, would seek to crush the Messiah. And it's carried out throughout the Scripture. We see it in Matthew chapter 2. King Herod, he's the king of the Jews, but there's a prophecy that another king would come along, a king that will rule the nations. Herod's intimidated. He's threatened by that. Seeks to destroy Christ. Christ escapes. But then we see throughout the Gospels the Pharisees coming against Christ to destroy him. We see Satan himself. Matthew chapter 4, as he attempts to tempt, he brings Jesus out into the wilderness to tempt him, essentially to devour him. And we see it with Judas. We see it throughout the scriptures, the Pharisees, ultimately leading to Christ's death, which we understand actually is victory. But this passage right here, verse 4, is summarizing Satan trying to devour Christ. It's summarizing the reality of the scriptures, the cosmic battle that is taking place. Okay. So the woman, we see, fled to the wilderness where God is taking care of her for 1,260 days. Okay. Some passages in scripture give us a ah effect, and some produce a what? And this is more of a what? In the wilderness for 1,260 days. What does that mean? Why is it important? Okay. If we think of the wilderness, our mind has to be able to go. Revelation is informed so much by the Old Testament. And think about the Exodus, God's people. He delivers God's people, the Israelites, out from Egypt in the Exodus, delivered them from oppression, brought them into the wilderness. And so what's the wilderness? It's a place of relief from oppression, from idolatry, from oppression, but it's also a place of testing as they're waiting, as they're longing towards the promised land, moving towards the promised land. And we see this with Jesus, who was in the wilderness. The difference between Jesus and the Israelites is he was completely faithful. He was tested, and yet he was completely faithful. And in every generation, God's people are in the wilderness. We really are in the wilderness. There's been a great a great deliverance, so to speak, by way of the cross. But we're in the wilderness. We're testing. We're longing. We're waiting for the promised land. But we still have to walk through the wilderness. And this is for 1,260 days. Okay. We have to do some math here. This is important math. It's going to lead us somewhere. 1,260 days is equivalent, if you do the math, to three and a half years. Also, throughout the book of Revelation, there's other references made to 42 months. That's also three and a half years. There's also a reference within this very passage of, uh, in verse 14, that they are to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. 
time one plus times two plus half, if you add that up, three and a half. Again, three and a half years is symbolic throughout this chapter because if we think of seven being complete, in a sense, seven moves us to the new heavens and new earth, but we're not there yet. We're in the midst of it. We're in the middle of the wilderness. Three and a half years where God will nourish his people. And so what we have to understand is that we are living between the times. We are living between the first coming of Christ. We are living in the midst of the wilderness before he returns again. And the scriptures tell us, especially 1 Peter 5, to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are at war. There is a cosmic battle going on. Our eyes don't always see the realities of it, but Scripture, Revelation, paints this picture for us very clearly. And it's an enemy we can't see, and he's furious. And so we need to understand more clearly the fury of the enemy. And we see this, if I can summarize this whole section... There is a war that arises in heaven. And and verses 1 through 6, in a sense, give us the earthly reality of this. But then we see this battle between Michael and his angels. It shows us the heavenly side of the same picture. Michael is described in Daniel chapter 10 and chapter 12, also in Jude, as the archangel of the Lord. So we see heavenly host, a battle against the host of hell, so to speak. Satan is kicked out. Scriptures say, woe to you. Well, first of all, scriptures say in in relation to the dragon that the deceiver of the whole world and the accuser of our brothers has been kicked out. And so heaven celebrates. But then verse 12 says, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And verse 17 speaks of that the devil pursues the woman And in his fury, he went off to make war against those who are her offspring. That would be us who hold to the testimony of Jesus and follow his commandments. Okay. In light of this reality that the devil knows his time is short before his judgment, and he comes down in great wrath, it is very important for us to be able to understand the sober warning of this passage, but also the great encouragement first the sober warning that as we read these pages, we see that he sought to devour. Satan sought to devour Christ, but he failed. So he turns his wrath towards us, towards the people of God. And we see this in the sense that he is furious, that he is pursuing the woman, that he is making war on those who seek to keep the commandments of God. So it's crucial that we understand the tactics of the enemy by way of example of this. In seventh grade, I attempted to be a wrestler for one day. I failed, and here's why. So the coach gets us all together, seventh grade, gives us a few minutes of instruction, and then pairs us off. I got paired off with Carl Jackson. We're in seventh grade. Carl Jackson had a mustache at this stage of his life. Long, unkept hair, um, animal-like when we got on the mat. And so we begin, you know, coach gives us instruction, and then he says, wrestle. And right then, Carl Jackson is high-kicking towards my face. And this is before kickboxing was cool, by the way. He just, he doesn't understand how to wrestle, but at this point, I'm not prepared for this. 
I am, uh, I'm just, I'm absolutely intimidated. And so he's cheap shotting and I have no idea what to do. Finally, we lock up in the middle. And before I know it, because I wasn't prepared, Carl throws me to the mat, in doing so, breaks and dislocates my left shoulder. I'm there, I'm done. I think you understand the point of this, that if we do not understand the cheap shots of the enemy, the tactics of the enemy, it's, we're on the mat, so to speak. We're on the mat, so it's important for us to understand what are the tactics? How does the enemy cheap shot, so to speak? And in three words, we could describe it this way through deceit, through persecution, and through seduction. Through deceit, we see this in verses 9 and 10. He is, Satan is referred to as the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of our brothers. And in verses 15 and 16, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. So we see the dragon pursuing in fury the woman pursuing the church, but seeks to pursue using the wrath of his mouth, a flood of lies and a flood of false deceptions, things of that nature. And so we have to clearly see the enemy is alive and well and seeks to deceive as best he can, deceiving the world around us, but even if he could, to seek to deceive us. And one of the ways that we see this, probably if you could call it one of the major philosophies of the day, is a term a man named Christian Smith coined, moralistic therapeutic deism. It is alive and well. I see it all the time on our college campuses. We see it with our youth. We see it throughout the world. Moral, throughout the world. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic. That God is chiefly concerned that we're simply good and that good people go to heaven. Therapeutic. That God cares that we're happy and he just simply wants us to feel good about ourselves. Deistic that God isn't so personal in our daily lives, but he's kind of there for us if we really get into a pinch. And it's everywhere. The problem with moralistic therapeutic deism is it takes us directly away from the gospel. Because the gospel, the answer to the gospel is the cross and it's grace. That we really did need a real savior for real sin and he really did die on a real cross. And that we can't be good enough on our own merits. We just simply can't. It breaks the holiness of God, the commandments that he's given us, and so there needs to be payment for that. There's the cross. And also, think about Christianity. What is different about Christianity than any other religion? Every other religion in some way seeks to reach up to God by being good enough, by, be, by gaining favor with God. Christianity says, no, it is God reaching down to man by way of the cross. That is his grace. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It is a dangerous deceit all around our world. But we see it played out. This and other philosophies, we see it all over the place. In the media, in movies, in the songs we listen to, in sitcoms, there is a, constantly, we are swimming in a culture that seeks to shape our views of ourself, our views of the world, our views of God, in ways that are absolutely contrary to the scripture. I have a friend that does this, I think it's so wise, that when he's watching TV as a young daughter, he mentioned that when he's watching TV with her at times, when various commercials come on, he'll say, wow, how did that commercial just lie to you? Or how did that cartoon, what's the lie that it just told you? It's a great practice. At times we have to step back and say, oh, 
really? Do you mean that if I chew a certain type of gum, I can meet a really attractive, complete stranger, make out with her, and we'll live happily ever after? I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? But that's what's at play. Sometimes it can be extreme like that, but also it's subtle. And a great challenge for us is to talk about these things, to encourage our youth, our children, ourselves. We are constantly swimming in this culture, and if we're not talking about the things that we're watching, movies, songs, we're listening to other things, we're more prone to being swept away. And so to be able to have the conversations, what are the lies? How does this movie portray love? How does this movie embody the good life? What does this movie say about our Christian faith? To constantly be discerning because if we're not recognizing the deception in the culture around us, we will potentially get swept along with it. Also, another tactic of the enemy besides deceit is accusation. The scriptures say that he he sought to accuse Christians day and night. If we think about this, what Satan would love to do is to accuse to say, you are not worthy of God. Your your sins deserve punishment. You are not worthy. But what did the cross do? The cross shut the mouth of the enemy. He cannot accuse because, yes, sins do deserve punishment. But at the cross, Jesus was punished for us. It is great news, but but Satan still seeks to accuse to bury us at times under the burden of our sins. And I love this quote from Martin uh, Martin Luther, who says this, Whenever conviction over my sin is present in my heart without an adequate view of the cross, then I know it's not likely from my Savior, but more likely from my flesh or the prince of darkness. For the Savior will never convict me without an adequate view of the cross to make me feel safe and secure enough to deal with the sordid nature that I have while maintaining a confidence in my sonship. However, my sinful nature and the prince of darkness will seek to show me my sin without any view of the cross so that it decimates me. What better way to immobilize a believer than to crush him underneath the weight of God's law and thereby use the very thing that is meant to send them to Christ in a way that blisters them and blasts them away from him What a victory for the prince of darkness. It's a great word for us that in a sense, Satan seeks to camouflage the cross, to distract us away through deceit. That's one of the weapons. Another weapon that Satan uses is persecution. And this may literally be the threat of physical violence against us if we hold fast to Christ. Now, we have to recognize this was a real issue in the first century church. But it's a real issue today. Around the world, this really does take place, and we have to recognize that. But that may not be so much persecution directly towards our physical life, but for us it can come in the form of pressure. Pressure to conform more and more to the world. Pressure, how about this? Pressure to say nothing about the hope that we have in Christ. To say nothing to those around us who need to hear the hope that we have in Christ. Or it could be pressure to silence us, that if we even speak of Christ to others around us, it may sound absurd because they see the way we conduct our lives. Maybe they see our crudeness. Maybe they see our harshness, a lack of love. Whatever it may be, 
Satan does seek to blow our witness to the world out of fear, persecution, pressure of fitting in. But also, there's another weapon that's at play besides deceit, besides persecution or pressure. And the third weapon is seduction. Seeking, Satan goes after the church as well, goes after the people of God, drawing our hearts away, seeking to seduce us, in a sense, to the lust of the world. And there are many seeking to come after the purity of the church. Throughout the book of Revelation, this is embodied, symbolized by Babylon and the great prostitute. Essentially, they're one and the same. But Revelation talks a lot about Babylon. And if we think about it, our Old Testament imagery, Babylon was that city that came against God's people, conquered God's people, and God's people were called to live faithfully in Babylon. We can think of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They had to live faithfully in Babylon, holding fast to him. But Babylon represents any city, any place that's full of idolatry, that's full of greed and luxury, full of immorality, seeking to constantly lure us, entice our hearts to other things, to more money, to more excess or success, to more pleasure, on and on. Babylon is the past, it is the present, and it will be the future. It is the streets that we walk in day in and day out. And God calls us to live faithfully in the midst of Babylon. And so questions that we need to ask ourselves at times. What is seducing our hearts? What is it right now? What are the things of the world that are seducing our hearts further and further away from Christ? Or at least how is Satan attempting to seduce our hearts? Another one would be, who are we fearful of? Who are we fearful of maintaining a solid Christian witness in front of? And why are we fearful? Satan seeks to drift us further and further away from Christ because the goal is that he would love to devour us. But this passage gives us great hope. There is great encouragement that we can rest in. And that is that our Heavenly Father really does protect his church. He really does protect his children. We see this throughout the pages of Scripture, and we see it in Revelation 12. And keep in mind that the host of heaven is more powerful than the host of hell. That Michael and his angels, through the cross, Satan is cast out of heaven, so to speak. That God is more powerful. And also, that as Satan seeks to devour us, that we are nourished. It says a couple of times in verse 6 that we're nourished for 1,260 days. And again in verse 14 that we're nourished for a time and times and half a time. Remember those time periods are talking about the fact that we're in the wilderness. We're between the times. Christ has come. He's coming again. But in the midst of this, he nourishes us. And it even, the passage speaks of in verse 14 that the woman, the church, receives the wings of an eagle. And this is a reference to the Old Testament. This would be a reference to Exodus 19. After Jesus, or after God had delivered his people out of Egypt, out of oppression, he says this. Exodus 19.4 says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So we see God bears his church on eagles' wings. 
In a sense, he delivers us. He delivered the Egyptians then, or excuse me, delivered us, delivered the people of God from the Egyptians, but he still delivers, still bears us on eagle's wings. He was faithful then, he is faithful now, he will be faithful in the future. And how did he nourish the people of God after the Exodus? We see that a couple of chapters later, after they're delivered, he gives them the manna from heaven. He gives them bread. And how about us? How are we nourished in this time in our lives as we walk through the wilderness? Jesus gives us the manna of his word. He gives us the manna of his word. Now, recently, or actually it was about a year ago, when my son Ty was four, I was giving him a little quiz and I asked him, we're talking about the Old Testament, I said, okay, so Ty, so what do you call the bread that comes down out of heaven? And Ty looks, he looks up, he squints for a second, he says, samples? (laughs) No, Ty, not samples. But this is important for us to understand. Samples are tasty, but they're insufficient. God hasn't given us samples. This isn't just samples. This really is everything that we need against the deceits of the enemy. It's everything we need to hold to in the midst of persecution and pressure. It really is what we have to cling to, what our heart must cling to in the midst of seduction. That God has given us through his word everything that we need. The most encouraging verse of this section, in my opinion, would be verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. That conquer, that word is a theme that runs throughout the book of Revelation. And we see it in the phases of Jesus's work. First phase of his work was his death on the cross. He conquered, he conquered sin and death. The last phase of his work is when he returns again. And the scriptures promise he is coming again to conquer. But in the meantime, we live in the midst of this, in the wilderness. The scripture repeatedly in Revelation refers to Jesus as the faithful and true witness. Faithful to the truth of God throughout his life. Faithful even to death. And God calls us. Jesus calls us to be his faithful and true witnesses. And this is what we're called to as we wrestle in the midst of a wilderness. To be his faithful and true witnesses. And we have a clear picture of what that looks like. If you want to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 gives us a vision of the churches. A vision of, of the seven churches. And this is a message for all people at all times. This message. If seven represents completeness, that we could say this message was good for this church, but the same messages are good. And I'll just summarize a few points from this. That in this church, in the message of the churches, we see, we see this thread throughout the churches of being faithful, of conquering. In a couple of examples, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, to the one who conquers, I'll grant him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Points us to the new heavens and the new earth. Also, chapter 3, verse 5, to the one who conquers, be clothed in white garments. I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. Every church has a message, a promise to those who conquer, who will be faithful. And the promise is held out that, that if you stick with me, we'll make it. If you stick with Christ, we'll be 
the new heavens and the new earth. It's that theme of conquering. And so what does it look like to conquer, to be faithful? One other theme that's carried throughout these, throughout these, uh, throughout these churches, the letter, the message to the churches that I've found incredibly encouraging is a call to patient endurance. Patient endurance. At least five times, patient endurance is, is mentioned within chapters one through three. So we are to patiently endure what? With love, with love of God that we have to hold fast. Jesus says, do not abandon your first love, that we hold fast to the truth, hold firmly in Christ with patient endurance, which means for us at times reading the scriptures, being under sound preaching in Bible studies, patiently enduring through the word. We have to patiently endure with our love for one another. Satan is constantly seeking to slither his way into the midst of our church and any other church that holds to the Bible. And he does this through gossip, through slander, through not believing the best in others, through a judgmental spirit. And we have to see the way in which Satan is actually tempting us to fall into this various stuff. And a great question for us to ask at all times is this. When we're tempted to be bitter and to slander, to say, who's the biggest sinner in this sanctuary? The minute I point at somebody else, I no longer understand the gospel. I have to be able to point at myself and say, oh, my sinfulness. Oh, the grace of God in my life. Oh, how patient God is with me. Who's the biggest sinner in this sanctuary? It's me. That's the gospel. In our marriages, we have to be able to ask the question, who's the biggest sinner under my roof? It's me. Because the minute I point to my spouse, game is over. I've misunderstood the gospel. Counseling professor, when I was in seminary, used to say this about marriage conflict. His specialty was marriage and family counseling. He says, marital conflict boils down to this. Men are stupid and women are mean. Uh, don't know exactly what you want to do with that. Could be some truth to part of that, but here's what we actually have to realize. That there's more behind that. There's an enemy behind that that really seeks in our marriages to turn us against each other. And we have to be able to say, no, my wife is not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. And to recognize patient endurance as we love each other. Patient endurance as we're raising our family, raising our kids, confessing a lot praying with them, praying for them, seeking to love them well, patient endurance, patient endurance as we suffer. Can't even begin to list out the suffering, even in the midst of our church, and potentially what we will go through this year as a church with the suffering. But we have to recognize that Jesus, the scripture says, was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, that he really does understand suffering, and that we really can cling to him in the midst of of our suffering. At one point in the message to the churches, Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. It's a great hope for us to not fear what we're about to suffer because there is the hope held out of the new heavens and new earth. And there is the promise that Jesus has faithful us in the midst of our suffering. That we can patiently endure with his hope with the hope of Christ and the hope of heaven and patiently endure with the seduction of the world, knowing this, 
that to the degree our eyes and our hearts are focused on pleasure and success in the world around us, to that degree we will be all about impatient indulgence. But God calls us to patient endurance, resisting the enemy. So Revelation calls us to see our situation in its true perspective, that we're not on a leisurely flight with reclined seats, ordering up cocktails. Uh Uh-uh. We can't be caught off guard. There is an enemy at work. We have to see our enemy in his true colors, that Satan doesn't play nice, that he really does seek to cause us to to live in great fear, to rate doubt of God's goodness, seeking to seduce us to whatever the lust of our flesh would want to go after. But we also have to see that we have a great champion, that we have a great champion in Christ, who the scriptures say is our faithful witness. We can trust him. He is the conquering lion. He fights for us. He's the sacrificial lamb. He died for us. And when we doubt the goodness of God, we look at the cross. We just look to the cross. We see his goodness there. Patient endurance as we journey through the wilderness here of Babylon towards the new heavens and new earth with this hope that Jesus at the very end of this book, Revelation chapter 22 and 20 says, surely I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. And that really is our hope. And that we have to recognize as far as the biblical calendar goes, he's come. He's come. He was born. He died. He rose. He's at the right hand of the Father. And the only thing left on the biblical calendar is that he will return. And so we wait and we hope. And we rest knowing with our eyes on the new heavens and new earth And I'll close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's his final paragraph in The Last Battle. Says it so well. The things that began to happen after that, and he's speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, essentially. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Father in heaven, thank you for your promise that's held out that Christ is faithful and will carry us through to the new heavens and new earth. Thank you that we see Jesus as a faithful witness that we can trust, as a conquering lion who truly does fight for us, and as a sacrificial lamb that died for us. Thank you that he really is what we need as we travel through the wilderness, but help us to patiently endure as we wait and as we wrestle. Help us to patiently endure. Help us to patiently endure in relationships that we would love others well in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, in other places where there is great struggle. Help us, Father, to endure and to love sacrificially. Help us in various job circumstances, especially with a tough culture, a tough economy for those that are looking for jobs and struggling in their jobs. Would you give them great patient endurance knowing that you are with them? various forms of suffering. 
Father, would you help us as a church and help those who are in the midst of great suffering to patiently endure with their hope on you, that you would hold them fast, that they could stand firm and help us. Help us, Father, to stand firm. And we do pray, especially for Bill, Karen, the family, as they are in the midst of just grieving, that you would give them rich time together as a family and a great sense of your hope, a great longing for your heaven, for the new heavens and new earth. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please stand for the benediction.